Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of the Killer Serials podcast. Uh, as you've uh, heard in the previous two episodes, we are taking a different tack with uh, this series, Rectify. Uh, I'm your host, Ryan Parker, and our regular co-host, Tony Jones, is taking a bit of a break. And in his place, we have had the privilege of speaking with some Doctorate of Ministry students from Lancaster Theological Seminary who are taking a course called Faith Formation in the Internet World. And uh, part of that is negotiating how we do faith formation in digital and social media spaces. And because of the digitization of TV through uh, channels like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, TV is more ubiquitous than ever. It's on our cell phones and on our tablets and on our computers. And so we thought it would be worthwhile to dive into a series uh, kind of like Tony and I have uh, historically done over the last couple of years and uh, tackle this great series called Rectify, which has been a critically acclaimed series. All four seasons are streaming on Netflix and hoping that conversations like this can bring more awareness to it because it does feel like it's a series that flew under the radar. For this episode, we are grateful to have Marjorie Roth. Hi, Marjorie. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And uh, tell us a bit about yourself, where you are, what you get up to with uh, your work and things like that. I am a Presbyterian minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. I work as a chaplain for a um, particular outreach of the church in the New York City area. I am a mother of three, and my husband is also a pastor of the Presbyterian Church. So we pray, we stay pretty busy um, between the kids and our ministries. Well, thanks for being with us again. And so, you know, we've the past couple of episodes, we've, we've kind of bounced around from epi- different episodes of the show and talked about some of the standout themes that are um, kind of intri- intrinsic to each episode, while also making space to consider the series as, as a whole. And we're going to continue to do that here in conversation with you. And uh, just to let everybody know we're kind of going to focus on episode six, Jacob's Ladder, which is the final episode of the first season. And so to recap, again, we're assuming that most people who listen to this have watched the show. Um, but if not, we can give a little background to, to what we're working with here. Rectify is a, was a Sundance Channel series, and it focused on a main character named Daniel Holden, who at 18 years old was uh, convicted and sentenced to death row for the rape and murder of a young girl named Hannah. Uh, 20 years later, new DNA evidence um, nullifies that conviction, and Daniel is released um, back into society, which is the first episode of the series. And living in a small Georgia town... Uh, where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows Daniel's and his family's story, um, obviously this opens kind of a Pandora's box of conflicts, right? So there are characters like the state senator and the sheriff who want to uh, have another trial and have him sent back into prison. And obviously there are characters like his family and his lawyer who uh, recognize that evidence like this DNA evidence um, is fairly uh, significant and that Daniel should remain a free man. So, Marjorie, I wonder what struck you about episode six, because I put out the feelers for uh, you guys to kind of pick what you wanted to talk about. So what was it about episode six that that struck you? Um, I just thought that episode six was the kind of culmination of um, the episodes. It is the last one in the first season. And 
to me, it um, really spoke a lot about the realities of what is truth. There was a, a lot more, I think, that made this episode rich in the concept of baptism and forgiveness, although we've had it in the episodes previously. Right. This episode we had, it began with this crime scene of um, Ted Jr. on the ground. Yep. We're not quite sure what crime happened. We just know that something happened, and it, it's ambiguous. It makes us question, what is Daniel really capable of? But at the same time, as we're witnessing this on the scene, the voiceover is actually Daniel's confession to Hannah's murder. And so we have this um, interesting convergence of what what is Daniel capable of? What is the truth? What is real in this? And both scenes end, or that whole scene with with him, with Ted Jr. and the confession, end with Daniel's voice saying, you know, Hannah seems so real. And I assume it was the sheriff, the sheriff at the Times voice on the recorder saying, well, what do you mean by real? And he said that she was alive. Okay, so that's that dialogue gave me chills when I watched it. So I want to back up for a second. And let's talk about this notion of truth. Let's dig a little deeper into that. So um, I thought it was very poignant that um, the third thing in the dictionary for the definition of rectify is actually finding a straight line equal in length to a curve. And I thought that to be okay. an interesting. I, I never knew that about the word rectify. It wouldn't have either. been the first yeah. one that came to my mind. But that's why the dictionary is wonderful interesting that Daniel's life seems to be so much more curvy. You know, the rea- what is real, what is not real, his time even. There's so much in the episodes that make you question what is happening, what time frame are we really in. So everything really feels like this curve of up and down. And yet we as um, viewers and, you know, kind of the judge and jury of Daniel are meant to find that straight line. What is the truth in in the curve that we're, we're getting. And I think also Daniel himself is trying to figure out in the confusion and in this curve and fuzziness of his life, what is that straight line of truth? That's a great, um, I'm glad that you bring that up because in our conversation with Mark um, in a previous episode, about a previous episode, one of the things about the series that really struck him and, you know, he said, he admitted, he's like, maybe this is just my read on it, which, you know, I think is totally fine is is any of this real or, or, or how much of this is really happening and how much of this is Daniel wrestling with his imagination, PTSD. And I think to your point, the series does a great job of showing that our lives are not lived in a straight line. Right. And that yeah. when someone's life is interrupted by something like a prison sentence, um, being on death row, um, Daniel is, is, maybe willingly and unwillingly living parts of his life that were taken from him, right? Yes. Let's talk a little bit about this confession because you bring up a line that we haven't discussed yet. Can Daniel be innocent and guilty at the same time? Yeah, and I think that there's probably some truth in in that <laughs> that I think as we as the progresses, I think we're going to find out that he, that there, he maybe he was there. Maybe there is some guilt um, that he really did feel later on in the episode six. He has that very powerful moment with Amantha um, at the pecan um, farm, 
the same one that he met the goat man at in the previous episodes. And he wrestles with, you know, the previous episode, he wrestled with the goat man in the pecan. And now he's wrestling with Amantha there. And that is a verbal wrestle, but it's a wrestle nonetheless of what is the truth. And they go back and forth. And Amantha is so sure that he did not do it. She seems to be throughout this whole thing, the one that has complete and total faith and believes in Daniel. If nothing else, she believes in Daniel's innocence. So there's, yeah, so there's a, there's a, I think there's a willingness we see in Daniel to acknowledge something that I think oftentimes we are unwilling to acknowledge in ourselves, right? Is that we are complicit in a whole host of atrocities. Um, It may not necessarily be the rape and murder of an individual person, but by being alive and living in kind of a hyper-capitalist society, there's no way to avoid that we participate in some destructive practices. Yes, How, What for do you think sure. about that? I th- well, I think that's very true. I mean, um, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, so <laughs> John Calvin believed in total depravity, and that's a part of, you know, who we are theologically. Okay. Um, you know, that, you know, everything that we do, we still contribute to the sins of the world. The reason why Presbyterians have a confession um, at church on Sundays is not to confess our personal sins, although that is part of it. It is to confess the sins that we participate in in the whole of the world. Acknowledging that in, that in just living in this world, we participate in the sin of it. Um, so we might not physically commit the sins that um, cause somebody to go to jail, but because we live in society and we allow the society's um, society to be as it is, which is not always just and is not always fair, therefore we participate in sending those people to, to prison. Yeah, we elect the officials that shape the policy that allow these things to happen, right? Right, right. Yeah. We, Maybe not well, us individually, we, but as a society, as you say. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, some people still don't vote, but that doesn't mean that they still don't participate in creating right. that system, be, be it by being passive in it. Right. Um, and, um, you know, you see that playing out here that I think, um, Maybe because he has not really been able to mature, Daniel, because all of his, you know, his truly maturing age happened in prison. You know, he isn't able to, he really takes on a lot of the guilt and sins. Like he has at that moment with Amantha, he says, you know, I'm sorry for all the pain I've caused you. And Amantha says, no, Danny, they caused us so much pain, you know, not Danny causing pain. And I think that's really a poignant moment that, you know, Daniel has constantly throughout this um, internalized a lot of this as himself. He internalized whatever happened to Hannah as his fault, be it because he actually did it or because as we hear on this confession at the beginning, there was definitely some some um, mistakes by the sheriff or some pushing by the sheriff, some collusion or whatever we want to call it, that got him to say things that maybe were not true. You know, he didn't say he took off her clothes. The sheriff led him to believe, you know, led him to say that. Well, you bring up another good point um, with, the, with the line at the end, which I think opens, reopens this whole thing when Holden says, well, what do you mean by that? And he says she seemed alive. Yes. So there's a. I wonder if I think I think maybe she was alive when Daniel last saw her because I don't think he you know 
maybe we're taking I'm taking sides here and as we've said in in previous episodes I haven't watched further than season one for multiple reasons but I you know there could be the real case that he when he means she seemed alive is that she actually was yeah well I I hardened to believe that that Daniel is not guilty of this crime but that doesn't mean that he is guilty of all crime I mean clearly he he even if um, we, he didn't do worst case scenario to Ted Jr. at the beginning of the, the, the episode, he still committed a crime with Ted. I mean, he still assaulted, he still assaulted him. him. He, put, he put the man unconscious and laid him down. Um, you know, that was still not okay. So, but I harden to believe that he is, he is innocent. Um, I think that that's the whole point of the show is, is the realities of the, the society that we live in, the justice system that we live in, and how it is so hard for people to get away from the perceptions that others put on them, even when those perceptions are not true. I want to talk about something else that you, as you and I kind of quickly prepped for this conversation, and you pointing to some of the themes that you uh, were drawn to or some of the uh, moments that, that struck you. I grew up in a small southern town, so I'm always intrigued in, by the ways that shows represent faith and spirituality and practice. And one of the themes that are, are the events that you uh, talked about was this uh, practice of baptism and the way it takes, it's not just the one moment in episode five, I think that's when he has his baptism, but you saw some some uh, threads of that in episode six. Yeah. I thought the baptism really played out in episode six that although his Daniel's baptism played out in, in the previous episode, that in six, we actually see the culmination of the question, what does it mean to be baptized? You know, is baptism really just the forgiveness of and cleansing of our sins? Totally. Those we've committed at this moment and those that we will continue to commit. Are we truly wiped out? clean or you know and even the bigger question is are people like daniel even redeemable you know i don't know that daniel believes himself to be redeemable you know um later in the episode when he's talking with amantha he says i don't know what i believe i don't know if i can believe anything and you get that that's really kind of the thought of he doesn't know if he can believe in anything and in the sense of what happened with with hannah but also just in his life and in his strange life. But you see this play out, the baptism play out with the very towards the beginning when um, Tawny and Ted Jr. are talk, kind of talking about it. But Ted Jr., while they're talking about um, Daniel's baptism, he is washing these pants from the coffee stains from the night before. And so, in a way, he is almost trying to cleanse that moment from his life. He is—he has that hard brush, and he is rubbing those um, pants really hard. And coffee stain is really doesn't seem to be that difficult to get out of pants. But yet, he is really trying hard um, to wipe away, to wash away that moment. You know, both physically from those pants, but also from his memory. And, and I love then, how he's, and I love how he just has no problem with telling Tawny, like, I basically pooped my pants. Yes, I thought that was intriguing too. And then he, but at those moments, he's saying, Well, I guess he's saved now. You know, Daniel saved. And Tawny says, I guess he is. But then they both kind of say it in such a melancholy way that well, she's it, not at all sure of what she wants, you know, what the previous day, how she felt a day or two days before. 
Right. In fact, actually, a little bit later in the day when they're talking again, they bring up the baptism and she says it may it must have it might have been too much too soon are her words. And I thought that was really intriguing that she spoke um, that of the baptism, that it might have been too much too soon. I, I, I think that's interesting, too, because I, I mentioned this to, I believe it was Mark yesterday, Mark or Coley, when we were talking about it, that, you know, one of the things I appreciate about the show is they're not set out to, to you know, it's not a show about baptism or faith formation. But I think it opens up questions about uh, spiritual formation, right? That, you know, in the evangelical world, there's this sense of once saved, always saved. And it takes place in this moment when you're baptized, right? Or when you ask Jesus into your heart and you undergo the practice of baptism. But I think rectify shows that it's much more than that, right? That there are conversations and there's guidance and formation. And and that conversation after that he has with Tawny shows, you know, it's way more complex than that, isn't it? Yeah, I thought that that statement of her saying it was too much too soon, maybe maybe hones in for her the reality that life is a lot more complicated and than the simplicity that she has experienced. And that maybe for her, the rea- her reality is being opened to the fact that even Christianity, even salvation is much um is much more complex than maybe she's even given a thought to. And, you know, for her, baptism was, you know, just wiping away the sin and then you are free and you are going to go forth and you are going to be a good Christian because that's potentially all what she has experienced. Could be. But she wasn't able to convince and say, quote, save um, Daniel from really doing and immediately upon being baptized, basically commit another crime. You see baptism in a couple of interesting places outside of, of Daniel and and his relationship with Tawny and the church. Where do you yes. see those in the series? Well, at the I really focused on where they were in six, um, but I did see them because I thought that in the series throughout, there are moments where they use water in an interesting way, and you think that the water is an, may, potentially a um, bringing back to um, to baptism, you know, we don't just dunk in the, you know, in the churches, some sprinkle, some just wash a little bit. So I think anywhere where we see water being used to clean something, um, it brings up baptism for people of faith. And we have the moment at the end where, um, I think it's Trey is he's, he's one of the people who is the witness, but at the end of his cover up of George's death, he gets into the water very close to where um, the murder of Hannah had happened, and he dunks himself and he cleans himself. And you feel like he is really cleaning and cleansing himself from the sins of, of, of the experience with George and that he's really trying to wipe that away because he wants to go home to his family. We met his family and saw his family earlier on. And you have this understanding that he wants to cleanse himself of what happened in the past. He doesn't want to go there. He wants to just start pure and clean and with his family. I think there, I think there might be a lot of people who would watch that and say, oh, he's just in the water and he's, he's just washing off the blood and the, and the grime from moving the body. But I think when you when you have a series like this that takes place where it takes place and that have engaged these types of conversations, I do think it is right or good to, to consider that deeper meaning, right? That there's more symbolism 
to it than just the kind of logistics of moving a dead body, right? Well, they didn't have to show that scene. They could have had to move the dead body, and the Correct. next scene could have been him oh. being clean and Correct. mowing his lawn. Correct. But they showed the scene. I think they showed the scene to 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 show us this idea of cleansing or cleansing himself of you know what he had done of even what he had done in the past. Um, and then the other spot that I thought was very poignant for um, the water scene was after Kerwin, um, his friend in the in the jail, had died. They clean Kerwin's. They they clean his cell, but they use, you know, a mop. They they didn't have to show the mop scene, but they did. But what's interesting is that um, it's the only thing. And that, it's a long that, scene. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, it, it goes on for several seconds, maybe minutes, right? That you know, um, well, you're forced to be in that moment. Yes, and you hear that, and you hear the water from from Daniel's point of view cleaning you know, and, and swashing and, and, and moving around. And then at the end, they say all clear. And I think that is a, is a moment to re, to think about the, not just what baptism can mean, but that concept of how water can cleanse. They were cleansing Kerwin out of that place so that another criminal could go in, but they were, you know, cleansing away, um, you know, all that remained of him. I think this is a good uh, segue into a question that I've asked across all these episodes. They're cleaning out the cell, and there's the line all clear, when it's quite clear in the series that the justice system is anything but that, right? It's not clean. It's not flawless. I wonder if you could talk about the ways in which maybe you thought about that part of our, that part of the human experience, that part of our culture, the justice system, the prison system before you watched Rectify, and then maybe how the show has shaped your thinking or challenged your thinking about that. It may have or it may have, and that's fine. But I just wonder if you could reflect on that. So I have always um, had a mind for social justice and have always felt very concerned about our prison systems in America. Um, actually, from an early age, in high school, I had a... we had to pick a topic for a debate and I actually picked the topic of the prison systems and if our prison system was fair and if the death penalty was fair and I was in Georgia at the time. So (laughs) I wasn't necessarily met with a lot of people who were on my side. It's hitting a little close to home with the series, isn't it? (laughs) But it is interesting. Um, So I've always had this, this thought and I've also always felt that the way Christians speak about what is um, sin and how who is forgive who is able to receive forgiveness and salvation has really um, kept a lot of people from from coming into the church and that's one of the things that's always on my mind is how can we change the language of salvation and forgiveness that we use today to begin to articulate what Jesus really meant by forgiveness and Jesus sat with sinners he he was there with the people who everybody else didn't want to be with. He was there with the people who were considered to be criminals of the day. I mean, there is, we have Jesus to died as a criminal. We have to reckon with the commandment about visiting in prison. Right. And Jesus actually was a, technically a criminal. I mean, he died as a judged as being a criminal. Now we, as Christians and our Christian theology say oh well then he wasn't he was really innocent but 
Jesus was or was not innocent, in the moment he was put to death, it was because he had committed a crime. And so um, I feel like we have lost that concept in our churches, and we also are not prepared in our churches to really do ministry to, to those who are in prison or coming out of prison. So I've always felt um, connected to this, but have never really done much with it besides a little bit here or there. As a chaplain, at when I was in a hospital setting, I did a, several... Um, I did have several inmates, actually, who came into the hospital and, you know, out of prison and had to come to the hospital for treatment or whatever. And I would, you know, offer chaplaincy and spiritual care to them, but I've never gone into a prison. The, I I think one of the things that you bring up is, is we see it in the show, is that, you know, Tawny is trying to be that Christian witness and that Christian presence to Daniel, and there is, there are people who are part of her faith community that are more standoffish, right? That aren't prepared oh, yeah. to address that. And Amantha says, you know, we were talking to, I was talking to Mark about this. You know, there, Amantha says, hey, let's go back to Atlanta. There are people there who can help you, right? Today, she says yes. this to Daniel. And you bring up a good point is that our churches could be places that could be equipped to provide that care and those services if we wanted to. Yes, they could. Yeah. Um, but you- we, we just live into the system though. And we also live into a system where if they were guilty um, in the world, then they're guilty in the church. You know, we don't leave room for people to have an alternative to being innocent, are you know, you especially saying there, are you saying against- there are limits to our ex- extensions of grace. Are you saying that? I am saying that, yes, churches have do limit the amount of grace that they give people, especially when it comes to people who um, have been who have been convicted of crimes against children. Every you know, churches have- feel this, um, you know, they have this obligation to protect children. Right. And so it goes very much against their other even if there are people in their in the congregation who feel like they want to do prison outreach, they have they hold these two things. And they, they don't, they cannot coexist. You cannot be a church that is very pro-family and also a church that is pro-prison reform without some very good leadership and conversations. Every time we have communion, communion at our church and we offer the invitation that it's the Lord's table, I am reminded of the fact that there is literally no one that Jesus would turn away. No one. Right. And I am, you know, but yet I think our churches would turn away a lot of people. Oh, and we do turn away yeah. people all yeah. the time. <laughs> so I have a question for you, and this is kind of a closing question that I think is kind of in keeping with, with this thread of conversation. Is Rectify a show that you would engage your faith colleagues or your faith community around? It is. I mean, I'm in a weird context because I am a chaplain to people who live in their homes and and they're not necessarily a true community. They all have their own communities, but um, I do think that this is something that could be very useful within a church context. And I, even if you're not actually going to begin the very difficult task as a church to say, yes, we are going to be really, really open, or we are really going to extend ourselves into prison ministries, even if you're church that just says, look, I see this as an injustice and let's have an open conversation about it. Um, I think it would be good to have people look this series up. 
I'm not sure that you could um, expose everybody in your congregation to this series because there are some moments that would be church setting. If so, if you were going to engage it, it would be better if people had watched an episode and then came in. That way, that's, that's um, some of yeah. the uncomfortable yeah. scenes um, could actually be talked through without people um, without people feeling um, awkward. You know, yeah, awkward, or even some people being, like, lambasted by them. And we don't know what people's real stories are. So, you know, people who might have been molested or um, who, people who might have had, who have even have families in prison, you know, those scenes are going to make them feel different. And they're going to experience those scenes differently in a setting with the church might not be um, a place that they feel comfortable doing that. I feel badly that that's true, but I think that is true. Yeah, well, you're um, respecting people's experiences and giving them space to process those things. But the one, the one moment in this, um, in this episode six, at, at about 20 minutes in, Daniel says something that I think is very poignant and it's really good for church people to hear. And that is, you know, just not, uh, so John says to Daniel, you doing okay? And Daniel says, I think so, John. And then John says, that's normal. Not doing okay, considering every any everything, sorry. And then Daniel goes on to express how he was shocked that he found John at Amantha's home and then says, you know, just not used to contemplating all the variables one might encounter. I mean, there was variables inside, but you, but wasn't like out here where it's you know, and if you don't have the years of experience, there isn't this the repetition of everyday living to make things mundane, because mundane is calm and soothing. Mundane isn't out of the ordinary. When everything is out of the ordinary, it can be too much sometimes. That is such a spiritual. Oh my goodness! Statement. The the most. I think if, however you want to engage it, philosophically, spiritually, it, there's some depth to that exchange that I, I think requires real unpacking and conversation, as you've articulated, from our faith communities. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you could go in a lot of directions in that. We could even start talking about just how our faith communities are not... Um, you know, that we have lost the, our own voices in the world. And so even even the Christian voice is not even heard in the world anymore. And so when church people come to us, this, this is what they experience. People who are unchurched, when they walk into our church, they don't know what to expect. And, you know, when we're in a relationship with God, this is very true, too. Um, you know, this is powerful on multiple levels. And to your point, when people walk into churches, they don't know what to expect. And at the same time, are we prepared to expect and embrace the endless possibilities of what people experience and what humans experience, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Hey, Marjorie, I want to thank you so much. I know you're super busy, but thanks so much for taking the time to chat through this show with us. I think it's it's been interesting to see, uh, this was the third conversation, I, um, it'd probably be aired or posted towards the end of the series because we're talking about episode six, but just how every conversation is unique and we've, we haven't, you know, re-walked many paths, right? There's always something different yeah. to talk about. So thanks for your insight and for the good work that you do. And hopefully uh, we can have you back again to talk about other 
series, and I look forward to sharing your podcast about Star Wars. I can't wait to hear it. Thanks. I appreciate that, and thanks, thanks for letting me be here. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Killer Serials podcast. Uh, we look forward to sharing more episodes with you in the future. Stay tuned.